Welcome to the Bards FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to a conversation with Corey Terry, retired Special Forces Team Sergeant. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots. And tonight, we're going to have a great interview with Corey Terry, who is a retired Special Forces team sergeant, good friend of mine. And that's a good interview, I think, to start on this December 1st in the year 2023. There's a lot going on in the national security segment right now and to basically the threat to our nation. And as I was witnessed yesterday when I was flying in from Tucson, that problem is getting worse. We have a tremendous amount of threat coming across our border, which is including Africans from Central and North Africa, and they are not the friendly type. And that's putting a lot of, it's going to put a lot of strain on the way our system is and the way we our lifestyle is in the coming months and years. Before we get going tonight, one thing that's absolutely clear that you need to be aware of is to keep your skills up. This is a time not to let them falter. And at a time when finding range time is hard in time-wise and costly, ammo is costly, you need something to practice and keep those skills sharp. And the best way to do that is iTargetPro. That's the letter iTargetPro.com, iTargetPro.com. If you head over there, you use your BARDS code, B-A-R-D-S, you'll get 10% off in free shipping. iTargetPro uses a laser bullet, uses dry fryer techniques to improve your sight alignment and trigger pull and many other methods to improve your overall accuracy in the safety of your home. It's also a great way to train your family in the safety of your home and just about any time you need to. Plus, you can exchange your scores with people across the web because this is tied to an app. So again, head on over to itargetpro.com, itargetpro.com, and use your promo code BARDS. Get 10% off in free shipping. It's a great product to have and necessary in this time that we live. Okay, so I've got Corey here with me. I'm going to bring him on right now. Corey, how are you? Can you hear me? I can. How are you doing? <laughs> Amazing. It's Amazing awesome. that you can hear me. The, 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 the tech seems to be have all the, the bugs, but... Uh, uh, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for for having me on. I love your show, and I love um, the people you have uh, within the Bars Nation. That's awesome, man. We finally have solved these problems. <laughs> we we finally have solved these problems. Got, I have all sorts of kids running around the house tonight. Oh, uh, so. is that the Kentrells in the background? Yeah, they are the Kentrells, so I'm getting visits into the studio, which is good. Today. Awesome. No, it's great. Um, no, it's actually this is really pretty amazing because we've been struggling with trying to get some of this Podbean application up, and Podbean actually has done an amazing job of including more and more stuff in the app, like this, which in your voice is really good, which makes it it's going to make it for a really good interview tonight. Great. So, Corey, let's just start a little bit. Just I mean, people have, you've been on before, but just let's get a background, on kind of yourself, and 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 uh, some people kind of remind who you are, and besides a great friend and uh, and a great dad. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, always an honor to speak with you. I, I appreciate the invite. And 
you have such a great message and a great word and um you definitely have a gift and i'm not trying to make your head explode but uh, <laughs> i enjoy listening to your show oh thanks Corey. and when i and when i can catch it the live that's even more awesome um podbean because uh everybody that logs in there's such a, a great group and saying hello to everybody good morning and and um you know lending in on prayer and it's just a it's just a good vibe and you know it's really positive really kicks the day off well but um so i i guess you know for those that haven't um we're not aware of, of my background i uh i grew up in a small little town in nebraska 180 people out in there um, it was actually a farming community um you know when i was a kid there was no i didn't have air conditioning when i was a kid i didn't have a game system we had one of those big console tvs i'm sure you remember them you know it's kind of wooden console with a big um tube in the middle of it you know we got about three channels there was no cable yeah. tv um, <laughs> yes, I do. but uh i grew up uh, with my two older brothers i was the youngest and we spent our time outside we were never inside uh we were at the park there was a in the small town, it was literally like five blocks by about six or seven blocks. It was 180 population. Um, but the neighbor kids that were there, we would always go out and ride bikes or go to the, the ball diamond and, and um, play either, you know, flag football or tackle football or, or somebody would bring a ball and a bat and a couple of gloves and we'd play baseball. Um, but the, the favorite thing to do was go down and, and go down to the creek. We used to call it the creek. You know, some yep. people call it creek. Yep, it's a creek. Um, <laughs> when I was younger, it was a creek. Yep. And and we when when we had soda, it wasn't soda; it was a pop, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, we used to hang a lot down by the 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 creek, and and kind of travel along the creek, and we would find beaver dams, and we would, uh, you know, break free the beaver dam, and then we'd go up, you know, even further, and we're like, oh, let's build our own dam, and we'd build, you know, chop some trees down, we'd bring axe or whatever we had, and you know, it was just, it was just good playing fun in nature and, uh, getting to, you know, we had the BB guns, you know, everybody's probably seen the the movie, a Christmas story. Oh yeah. Um, so we all had our little BB guns and, um, and there were, there were the sparrow, my, my stepdad at the time, he told us, he's like, you can shoot the sparrows, you can shoot the crows, but don't shoot any songbirds. Dude, uh, I had so the same didn't... rule. I had the same rule. I was, I was like killing sparrows left and right, man, all the time. Like oh yeah, guys. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and my older brothers were were better before me, and they had a BB gun before me. But mm -hmm. um, we used to go down to there was a grain elevator uh, in our town, down by the railroad tracks, and of course the birds would all hang out there and, and pick off the grain, and we would just sit there behind the bank. It was this old bank, and we'd sit behind the bank right next to the grain uh, elevator, and pick off sparrows. And I, I remember. We had a pile of sparrows one day. It was like 32. <laughs> we had like 32 kills confirmed. Um, <laughs> but, I know this day. You know, I know these days. Yes, keep going. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. It was uh, little, little. I know prepare me for my future sniper days. But, um, but yeah, it was it was a good time. And we used to do a lot of crazy stuff. Walk along the railroad. And this, you know, my my parents worked. You know, and they would leave us home on the weekends. I was probably seven. Matt was eight. Brian was was nine. And we would just kind of free range chickens, uh, you know, by ourselves, no, no supervision. We would walk the railroad for miles. And I remember one time we were walking the railroad and you get to one of those 
uh, bridges, uh, railroad bridges, and it would have the, the big high railings, uh, part of the truss system. And yeah. we would walk along those. And I remember my brother, Matt, uh, was messing around and he fell off the bridge. <laughs> and I looked at my brother, Brian, and we're like, oh, crud, Matt's dead, right? And we looked down and he fell probably, in my mind, probably about 35 feet. It's a good distance. So we ran down there to see if he was okay, and he's standing up, and he was all wet. And I just remember when we found out he was okay, me and my brother just just keeled over on the ground laughing. It was so funny. Um, yeah, the, the little things that my mom probably didn't know. In fact, this one time, I think it was during the winter, because we used to go along the creek uh, when it was frozen over and just, you know, just kind of walk along on top of the ice. And we'd go to, there was a lake about a mile and a half away, and there was a an overflow because um, there was a dam mm-hmm. and there was uh, I think it's what do you call it overflow spillover whatever and it was frozen and yeah. the ice was really thick and me and my brother's like let's try to break the ice it's the dead of winter it had to have been you know negative how many 20 degrees it was right. freezing out and we're all trying to break through the ice but it was too thick and I had this idea is like hmm maybe if I get a rock kind of focus my weight and I jump on this rock and lo and behold, it worked. And I fell through the ice and I couldn't get out. Um, and uh, if my brothers weren't there to pull me out of the water, the freezing water, because I went under, uh, I probably would have not be here today. Um, so it was good times. <laughs> and the mile and a half walk but back to the house. My, my, I was just a solid sheet of ice. And um, uh, of course, at least we had heaters, maybe not air conditioner, and we got to warm up. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, that's, that was good times. That was good memories. Um, my brothers, they, I learned a lot from them. We did a lot of stuff together. Um, but being out in nature and um, God's country, I think, gave me a, a love for the outdoors. And Nebraska's not mountainous, but I love the mountains. Um, but the sense of adventure, uh, getting out there and doing stuff. Yeah, I know you were telling me before uh, about your property, and it sounds great. And I'm sure the, the Contrail boys are, are loving it out there. You got the animals and you got the hills and, and God's country out there. And that's great. Uh, I think that certainly prepared me for, you know, I guess my future career, which, you know, I, um, I graduated high school, went straight into the army, um, spent a little time in active duty and didn't actually, when I first did active duty, I didn't, I was a little disenchanted because it was just kind of a terrible place. We had terrible leadership. I uh, know you know you hear about it today in current events, but it was it was not a good great place. It was not what I expected. It was not what I thought I was enlisting into. Um, but I did my time, served on them, really got a discharge, went actually back to Nebraska, started a construction business, um, was in the guard. It was a little the guard was actually a better experience because it was um, it was really good people, you know just getting together on the weekends and in two weeks a year and, and serving in that little capacity, never deployed with them. Um, but nine 11 happened. And I remember my, so, so my son Jordan was born on the 5th of September, you know, right before nine 11. Mm-hmm. And, um, he had, and it's interesting because all my kids, um, when they were born had jaundice except for my son now liam he he never had the vitamin k shot never had any vaccines and i never knew anything 
any different. I wasn't the wiser. Um, but of course he had, um, uh, Jordan at the time he had gotten jaundice and he was all yellow. So we had to bring him back to the hospital, um, put him under the billy lights. And it was, um, it was interesting because I was tired and kind of staying up. I was sleeping in and I woke up and the TV was on. And I saw, um, the towers on fire, you know, and I was like, Whoa, what's going on? Oh, the planes crashed in the towers. And shortly after the first building, uh, fell down. And, and I said, well, why didn't you wake me up? Oh, you were sleeping. You were tired. I'm like, yeah, but this is a major world event. Like wake me up. But anyways, yeah. a week later, uh, went back to the recruiter cause I was compelled to, to come back in active duty and, and serve at the highest capacity, um, that I was able to serve at. I wanted to go special forces. I asked to do that. And four years later I enlisted. Well, so I, I was active July, 2002. And then four years later, I was found myself on a special forces operational detachment alpha doing green beret stuff. Uh, it was, uh, it was a long journey. Yeah. And then I, I did, uh, multiple deployments, Afghanistan, Iraq, Af uh, and Africa all throughout Europe. Um, but yeah, and then I retired at, late, uh, at the end of 2019. Uh, I was still work training, you know, future Green Beret medics in New, in New Jersey on a clinic rotation. That's huge, man. I mean, special forces training, I think, is uh, I don't think people realize how much time you guys put in to getting to that place to even begin to start. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I mean. There's a book that I think it was Dick Couch. He was a former SEAL. He wrote on that whole training process, selection and training process. It's called Chosen Soldier. Um, and I think the title just kind of lends itself to, you know, just not anybody can can get into Special Forces and become a Green Beret. Um, you know, they always say that you're a third-time volunteer, right? You volunteer to go in the Army. You volunteer to jump out of airplanes, become airborne, and then you volunteer to go to special forces um, assessment and selection, and hopefully you make it. So three-time volunteer. <clears throat> but, you know, you, you usually, you know, historically, um, you spend some time in the Army, right? You go to basic training, go to advanced individual training. Um, so any other job skill set doesn't matter if you're a cook or a mechanic or a tanker or infantry, um, you do something else and you get a little experience, you get a little, um, maturity and you kind of grow up a little bit in the army, understand the conventional side. <clears throat> and then you go to, uh, assessment and selection and it's a high attrition, right? So you obviously you have to put in a special forces packet assessment, uh, selection assessment packet. And so you have to get a physical and you have to, um, they want you to take the D lab, which is kind of um, a practice fake language to see how much aptitude you have for learning foreign languages. Um, and then once that's all done, then you get a selection date. <clears throat> they usually don't turn anybody down for selection unless they have uh, something that would disqualify them, whether it's qualifying for security clearance or disability or, or uh, profile, you know, medical profile. Um, and I think I had like 400 some in my selection class and we ended up losing all but like uh it was like a hundred and i don't know 70 something like that 
wow. um, but high attrition. Um, but then you go through two years. If you make selection, you go through two years of training. Um, and when I went through, it was first assessment selection. Then you did small unit tactics, which is kind of the Ranger School of uh, Special Forces. Um, then you did your MOS, uh, Military Occupational Specialty, uh, whether you're a medic, engineer, communications, or um, uh, what am I missing? Communications, medic, engineer, weapons. Okay. And then uh, after you get done with that, then you get back together and you do the unconventional warfare exercise called Robin Sage. It's all throughout North Carolina. It's this uh, fictitious country called Pineland. Um, you got local and state uh, law enforcement involved and you got a lot of role players. It's really big, big. It's like the biggest exercise that goes on a couple times a year. Um, then once you're successful at that, you get to, uh, when I went through, you'd go through language school, which for a cat three language like Arabic, you go for six months. Um, when you finish that, then you would go through SEER. It's a little bit different now, but I think it's mainly got the same components, just a little bit different organized. But that was a two-year process for a special forces medic. Um, some of the other MOSs were a little bit shorter, um, like the weapons or engineer, like the 18 Bravos, right? The, the engineer sergeant, they, they, uh, they just, they just got to shoot a bunch of guns, learn how to disassemble them, reassemble them, function check, and <laughs> be good, but be a good marksman. So, um, they're not learning how to do, you know, field amputations and administer medications and anesthesia. So they have, they have, I think their MOS phase is like three and a half, four months where our, our MOS phase is a year. Um, so they, and that was the contention, right? So when you go through the course, you, you kind of have a wish list of what you want to do. And I picked 18 Delta, the Special Forces Medic, because it's, it was the most challenging and it was the longest. And I wanted to be the most prepared to serve my team and my teammates. Um, so that's why I kind of put that at the top of my list. But other guys were like, no, I want to get to a team. I want to get to war. I just want to you know, fight the enemy, which, okay, so there's some contentions. What do you want to do? Um, but I'm glad I, I I picked that and was chosen to become a, a special forces medic. It was a very rewarding uh, career. Incredible. Uh, very, um, it, it's crazy. I gave a graduation speech once to Sockham's after I was, you know, through the course, been in special forces deployed and came back as an instructor and he asked me to speak to one of the graduating classes. And I broke down the numbers, right. Right. Of, of the place, on earth that you were born right mm -hmm. and god god has a plan but he, you were born in the united states or you came to the united states out of you know was eight billion people on the planet um but you were born or able to uh, enlist into the military the u.s military past the physical um you know the asvab have good enough scores um and then once you've done that, be, you know, because I think the Army, I think the active component is what, 1.7 million active, 1.7 plus. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's in Special Forces, you know, there was, I think at the time, less than 7,000 active Special Forces. So wow. you do the math. It's, and I broke all these numbers down and write. And and that and of the, the 7,000 uh, Special Forces guys, you know, one-fifth of those or less were, were medics. Right. So it was, it was, uh, it came down to a small fraction of the world population of how blessed you were to be in the right spot, the right time with the right God given 
talent and intelligence to be in the course and make it through. So it was, you know, once you, you kind of extrapolate all that, it's kind of, it's kind of like, wow. Um, yeah, very blessed. Everything that you learned in special forces in terms of UW and counterinsurgency, we're facing a real similar crisis, but it's in our own country now. Would you agree? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the biggest thing I think, you know, so it's, it's all about the population. It's all about the people, unconventional warfare, right? Because without, you know, an unconventional warfare is by, with, and through, uh, using small team, highly capable individuals on small teams that go into a country and they help, you know, the people, the indigenous people overthrow their oppressors. Um, or if they have an illegitimate or oppressive government, you know, overthrow them. And it could be in, in a semi-permissive environment or it could be in a non-permissive environment. Um, but either way, it's the same, you know, this, the goal is, the strategic goal is still in the, in the end is the same. But the only way to realize that is through the people, right? It's through the indigenous people because a 12-man ODA is not going to throw over a country. Right now, they can help facilitate that through the people. Right, we're a force multiplier, and our mission is to partner with the indigenous forces. Right, and 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 I know I've said this before on your show, but truly, like caring for them. Right, you you're vested in their um, in their lives. You're vested in their in their goals and their mission, um, and you really want them to to be free from their oppressors you care about their families you care about their children you help them with with uh you know whether medical needs they need what do they need for food what they need if they need a, a well will help facilitate building wells and roads and bridges and churches and schools right what whatever they need you know but first and foremost it's always security right but mm-hmm. then the rest the rest can follow um but without that acceptance, without that relationship uh, with within that tribe or the, that people, you will not be successful because a 12-man team cannot overthrow a country of, you know, 25, 30 million people, like with, with a strong government, strong, you know, oppressive force. Um, but if you are able to lead and bring the people together under one common cause, one fight, um, and that's just the key is, is, is that continuity or that, um, cohesion, like bringing the people together, that being that point, that rally point, uh, where everybody sees that, uh, okay, great. We have some people with some skills and some knowledge and they're going to teach us, they're going to train us and show us how to go on these missions and, and overthrow our oppressors. Right. And then that, that kind of builds. Right. And I know, it doesn't just take a, a special forces ODA, but that mentality, that mindset. Now, now going back to what you know, we were talking about in, in our own country, what do you see every day in the news, right? Topic of discussions at work, topic of discussions uh, in the grocery store. And over the last four years, it's always been divisive topics, right? Whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's uh, the 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 anti-abortion 
whatever, you know, it doesn't matter if it's right, wrong, or indifferent. There's always a point of division in every topic of everyday discussion. And, and, and I think that's by design. They want us to, you know, be divided. They want people to look at their neighbor, look at their coworkers and say, I don't trust that person. You know, they, they're, they're conservative or they're liberal or they're just loony or wacky or conspiracy, conspiracy theorist. Um, but the more that they can divide the people of this country, the more influence and control they will gain. And on top of that, it being a distraction, you know, that sleight of hand where they can, you know, the, with the bureaucracies implement policies that are destroying this nation, like such as the border and Pete Chambers, true American hero down on the border, um, is, is trying to do his little part and, and he'll be, be, a, be that, um, be that stopgap. Um, but you know, whether it's the border, whether it's, you know, the energy and, and the push, like in New Jersey, right. They, it, the governor is saying that, you know, by in 10 years or whatever it is that we're not going to have any more gas appliances. Like the heck is that? Like, it's just, um, I mean, how, how bad would it be if your whole house in the wintertime depended on electricity and there's rolling blackouts and, and not everybody has a generator, you're going to freeze or you're going to start burning furniture in your fireplace or, um, but like all these distractions so they can, and there's all these other, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, artifice of, of their 5g warfare, um, against us, whether it's, uh, the COVID mandates, the economy, um, Hold on one second. <clears throat> Sorry about that. No worries. Um, I actually, <clears throat> it's interesting because last week I had laryngitis. And last night I was, I had a talk with um, some EMS folks. I had, it was their EMS education night and they asked me to come speak about point of entry injury stuff, uh, lessons learned in combat. And I didn't think I was going to speak. So last night was a little rough, but I made it through. So a little bit of a warm up. <laughs> that's good. Um, you get all prepped for something. That's good. Well, Corey, you know, the thing that's interesting is, um, and I, you know, I was sending in some this situation updates when I was down there in, oh, in yeah. Tucson. And I mean, I just, what's really, sure. really was stunning was the volume. I mean, we hear about it, but when you're at the airport, over 200 illegals getting a special line in TSA, giving plane tickets and getting hotel reservations and meal vouchers, many of which are being sent to Dallas. Um, you also had the Africans. And you and I talked about that today. These are not what you would consider to be the ones, the types of people you want coming into your country. These people have been on the street. They, are, they have fought. And it's evident by everything that they are and everything that they represent and how they talk, how they are. This is, this is a real issue because we're getting into a place here where we're getting these people embedded into our society. And I'm, I'm going to flip the script on you a little bit because you were talking about what it takes to build an insurgency. What do you think it is that's allowing these people to be motivated to become the insurgents in our own nation? Because somebody's got to be supporting them and 
it's not their family that they're caring about. What do you think that is? Well, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's different theories out there, but it, to me, what makes sense is like, okay, a first of all, how are they getting here, right? If it's, um, if they're coming from Africa, that's, that's not just a, a hike down the road. I mean, that's that's a couple plane flights, maybe even on a boat, and then maybe maybe a bus and train. Uh, trek through the jungle in Panama where, where uh, Michael Yon's doing great reporting work down there. If you, if you don't um, look at Michael Yon's work, take a look at it. You can find him on, on Twitter or X, I should say. Um, but the, the interesting thing is, is how are 7 million illegals getting into our country? So yeah. there's money behind it. It's not just individual desire to have a better life. You know, and that might be the case in, in a lot of instances. But you can't tell me that that's the case uh, across the board. So if somebody comes from China, right? A, they're already kind of a very <laughs> communist country that is controlling of their population in and out of and where they're going. Um, whether it's from Africa, Central Africa, Haiti, uh, you know, wherever they're flying from those countries across the Atlantic or even Pacific to South America, Central America, and then making that journey all the way up to our border. All right. So these are third world countries, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. How are they buying the plane tickets? Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, obviously somebody is sponsoring these flights. And if you do the math, you know, it's probably not 7 million coming from, uh, this far distant country, but I'm sure at least half of them are. So if you said 3.5 million people, how are you playing for three, paying for 3.5 million airline tickets, multiple legs, and then setting up these and facilitating these camps uh, in Panama and along the route with buses, right? There's a lot of logistics. You got to pay the drivers. You got to lease the buses. You got to set up the camps. You got to pay for the gas. You got to pay for the food, the water. Uh, any type of medical support, you know, Michael Yana reported on these rape kits because it was known that when you went through the Darien Gap into Panama, that you were had a, a high chance of either dying, uh, being assaulted, robbed, or raped. And so they were issuing these rape kits to these women. It's 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 just an, it's just disgusting, you know. That yeah, we're we're not gonna. <laughs> We're, we're not going to solve this problem. We're just going to hand you a rape kit and you just deal with it. Like it's ridiculous. Um, but the, the funding of that. And then after they get through that and get through Panama, uh, the trip all in the track, all the way through Mexico to our border. And then the doors wide open. And, you know, we know have friends that are on the border and see this happen daily and, and, and they're sickened by it. It's a policy by our government. It's facilitated and supported and through NGOs and other third parties um, funded by our tax dollars, right? So this is, this is an invasion. This is not, this is not just your normal, um, you know, disadvantaged poor people looking for a better life or oppressed people escaping a, an oppressive government. This is a well-designed, planned, and funded operation to invade the United States and this, you know, destabilize our country. You see it in Europe, you see it in, in Ireland, in Great Britain, 
where all these, you know, you know, the, the cultural clash, um, you can't just dump 7 million people into a country with different culture and ideas and, and no concept of what our laws and our culture is like and expect that not to cause friction. Um, or maybe even at some point, some kind of, uh, whatever scale, a civil war. Um, it's by design in my mind, you know, that's, and there's, and there's a lot of, you know, tangible things that, that paint that picture. I agree um, with you hundred percent. I mean, I think that we and I've been talking about one of the striking things about these people coming in is that they were, um, they've all been given everything. So you've got guaranteed plane tickets, guaranteed hotel food vouchers. And as the attendants, the desk attendants were talking to me, or desk agents, they were saying that when these people don't, like they miss a flight, then they come to the desk agents mad because someone hasn't given them food and hasn't given them a place to sleep. That is set up for major problems because all you have to do is cut that, that flow of money off once they're established here. And immediately you have a violent mass ready to go steal and take by force what Americans have worked hard to earn and, and preserve. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and if people are not familiar with, with William Cooper, Bill Cooper, who wrote the the book, uh, a pale horse, um, he's done a lot of interviews. He's, you know, he was, there was a very sketchy event when he was killed, but, uh, he talked about a lot. Um, you know, that, that the, the power brokers, the globalist power brokers, these groups around the world, you know, they always talked about uh, depopulation. Um, but he said, you know, one of the, the strategies that, that they had talked about was to actually get rid of the middle class, which you, you're seeing full effect now, right? So you have the elites with all the money, the small percentage of people with all the money, and then everybody being pushed down to the bottom where you're barely scraping by. And I'm sure people have seen videos um, of these, these, you know, these poor people, you know, just kind of screaming out and saying, Hey, I cannot provide for my kids. I'm a single mother. I work two jobs and I can't pay for my mortgage and I can't pay for rent. And um, it's hard to buy food for my kids. And they're just kind of desperate. Right. And the idea is, is once you make that divide between the upper class and the lower class, you push people to depend on the government, uh, the welfare state, right? And whether that's food stamps, um, you know, here in New Jersey, there's section eight housing. So if you don't make a certain level of income, they'll pay up to, depending on how many kids you have, up to $2,700 a month for uh, rental or, or I don't know if they do mortgage, but they'll do a, a rental property, all taxpayer funded, right? Medicaid, uh, Medicare, um, other medical assistance, ed education, free education, come get your driver's license. Um, there's all these freebies, right? So the incentive to better your life, create a business and generate money, uh, especially with all the bureaucracy and red tape, right? All the, uh, I have a buddy who's got a trucking business. And I was there. Um, I was actually sanding a, a piece for his coffee bar and helping to make this coffee bar. And the fire marshal shows up. And he starts going off and I, I asked uh, my buddy's wife and because he wasn't there and, he, and she's like, oh yeah, well, it looks like we're going to get a fine. Who knows? And I'm like, well, what's up? 
well, he was saying that you guys were doing construction and there was no permits filed. And I'm like, uh, well, we're just, we're sanding, we're using his warehouse as space to sand. We were planting some uh, nice cherry slabs and sanding it. it. It wasn't for there. It was nothing construction on the site, but it was just space. And we were going to take it to their house and, and build it. But this guy was like, there's a wire hanging here. And like, there's, so it's so hard to, make a buck, right? Even if you are successful and you're intelligent and you have some skills and you create a business, there's, there's all these agencies, regulatory agencies that just crush the small business owner, right? It's, it's all about crushing the middle class. Um, but anyways, that divide between the, the lower class and the higher class, driving the lower class to be dependent on the government for everything. And then back to what William Cooper was saying, is once they build that dependency into the lower class in America, they pull the plug on a lot of those uh, welfare, a lot of that welfare. And now the people are left desperate. You know, if you lost your food stamps and you lost your housing and you had no means of income and you had five kids, small kids to take care of, what are you going to do? <laughs> Yep. I mean, you're going to try to borrow from your friends, your neighbor, and they're just as hungry and desperate as you are. And then pretty much you're going to get together and just roll into a store and steal bread. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, and I think that's, you know, what we're going to see in the near future. Who knows? Maybe it's next year. Maybe it's even longer. Uh, but you got 7 million people coming to this country, facilitated by our own taxpayer and our own government and get them dependent on the government. And when the funds dry out, whether it's the economy, maybe it's contrived, who knows? Um, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you get 7 million desperate illegal immigrants that came here without any consideration of our culture, or maybe even hating America, and now they're on the streets looking for food. They're going to come to your house, they're going to come to my house, and hopefully you, you can defend yourself because there's definitely not enough police out there. Let's talk about situational awareness because I think it's one of the big things right now that people have to really develop a more acute sense of that. I mean, downrange, you develop a pretty hyper-acute sense of situational awareness. You and I were talking about that today, just even the sense of picking up people's intent by just the way they are and in which you've come to, to become accustomed to, the way they look at you. Um, what would be some processes and things you would suggest to people in this time? Because this is, this is really a point where people have to start really developing that sort of awareness in their communities because things are changing fast. Yeah. Well, I mean, God gave everybody, well, most people have the ability to hear, to see, to smell, to taste and to feel. Right. So if you see what you learned was the color blue, you know, it's the color blue, right? If you hear somebody honking the horn because they're about ready to run you over when you're crossing the street, you know that there's danger coming. But there's God also gave you intuition, right? That gut feeling when, you know, in your, in your life and your past experiences, when you're interacting, maybe it's somebody new, maybe it's somebody at work, or maybe it was a relationship. And somebody just gave you that gut feeling that they were not being sincere. They were not being truthful. Kind of like a lot of politicians these days, right? <laughs> like all of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you, most people have had that ex-boyfriend or girlfriend 
that you just knew in your gut they were lying, but you didn't have any evidence, right? You don't have no pictures, no recordings, no first-hand accounts, no eyewitnesses, but you know there's something up, there's something wrong. And then, of course, time, as time goes on, most everything comes to light, right? And then years later, you look back, you're like, man, why didn't I just trust my gut instinct? Well, God gives you that intuition. God gives you a gut instinct and everybody should listen to it. Now, what you're talking about downrange, you're kind of hyper aware anyways, and you've had training, um, but it's, it's, it's pretty readily apparent. When you go into a valley and you interact with villagers all the time, right? Different indigenous people. And it's very apparent when somebody is welcoming if somebody is nice, but they're guarded because they just don't know who you are. Or somebody is just looking at you like they just want to kill you. They just want to cut your head off. Like that, There's just that guttural feeling you get when somebody looks at you and you can just almost like, you know, the, the eyes are the window to the soul. And I've, and I, and I've seen this in Afghanistan and I've seen it in Iraq, you know, and it's just, it's, very apparent it's one of those signals and i'm and i'm sure you have seen it many times and i think i think you had had said or mentioned something about your recent trip through the airport too as well yeah it was pretty evident because you get that look of these guys and you're just looking at them and you're it's very evident that these guys have all had violence in their background and and there's it's that's comes through pretty clearly if, any, if you've been around gang members, you know how that is. And there was the hostility towards people there, the disdain for America was stunning. I think what's even more stunning to me was that all of the, the only people that were vocal about it were women and all of the men that were there, and they were obviously American men, were basically just trying to ignore it. I mean, you know, whether it's at the bar trying to drink it down and ignore it or whether it's the guys burying their face in their cell phone, the only people that were actually standing up and pushing back against it were the desk agents and, and the, that one barista uh, bartender that I talked to. And it's, it's, it's a very disturbing point because this is, this is at the core of this invasion that we're dealing with here. Um, but we're definitely dealing with a, something here that is not being pushed back on to a large degree. And it's people, as I talked about this morning in the show, I think men are more concerned. I mean, men in the corporate world are more concerned, concerned about, you know, what's my 401k value? What's uh, my next thing I need to do for the promotion of my job? I have to worry about some drama with my secretary or my, my office assistant or, you know, there's some issue going on at HR. None of these things have any real big impact on your life. But, and especially right now, and it's again, we kind of go back to that, all the distractions that are happening because the invasion is happening right now. There's no question about that. And it's, it's in mass. Yeah. I, th- I thought it was great that you shared uh, your experience going to the airport because when you um, texted me that information, I, I didn't know that piece, you know, I, I, I hear a lot from Pete and others and, and Michael Yawn, what's going on. And I did, well, I wasn't aware of, of what was going on in those those Southern airports. And I was like, wow, like, you know, there's, there's some eyewitness account. Why is this not being reported more? Why is not some investigative journalism going on? Right. Is that being blocked? Is it just 
is it just ignorance? You know, like they say, ignorance is bliss. Is it, you know, what is that? Well, I think that's really what's interesting is that when all it took, and you and I, we talked about this today. I mean, it was, because that's a normal human sensor concept, right? When you're working in around people to observe and then just to engage in casual conversation and see what you can develop, right? It wasn't even difficult to start getting real data. Like I can see it. It's obvious when I walk into Tucson Airport, there's 200 illegal aliens lined up going through a special TSA line. And I can tell you by the body language, the TSA themselves is fed up. And, you know, they're just kind of stuck in their job. And I, I know that as well because when I came up to go into the line, I was taking my suitcase and I'm on light lift load right now since the surgery. And they, I mean, immediately I just, they were so helpful, which is unusual for TSA to begin with, but super helpful. I mean, like, don't worry about your bags. We'll do a quick scan of them. Don't take your laptops out. None of that. And just get me in and out. And part of that is, and I can just tell you by the sense and the nature of the conversations is you're an American. They aren't. We're so happy to deal with one because everything else is illegal. They're just getting it forced down. And they're watching this railroading happening right before them. And the one part that was so amazing for me down in Tucson was the number of Africans. And many of them are Nigerian by accent and by performance. But then you get into, and I would say Somalian, Nigerian and Somalian. But then you get into the Central Africans, and, and, and I have to look at the map again. I used to know this very well, but it's been quite a while. But they're French-speaking. So there's that's Algeria, and then that's down into Central Africa, the way it used to be. So you're getting into very specific sects of, of groups of people. And just, you know, so people understand, I mean, the, the French colonies were the most violent in Africa, which developed a violent culture. So we don't have the best of the best coming in. And they're aggressive. They're openly disdainful and even hateful of women, um, and they're all they're all entitled. And when you start adding those pieces together, even if you don't come from a violent background, but you have that sort of disdain and hostility in your heart, like we were saying, you drop off their support, their welfare, you have an instant trigger for violence. It's right there. And in Africa, unfortunately, it's for a lot of these places they come from, it's normal, right? By deception, we wage war. Yes. Um, the... You know, it's any with with daily interactions with with people like in the hospital that I or some co- coworkers. You know, they're they're busy in their in their lives. You know, they have their families, um, they have their work, their careers, and there's just so much going on on the alternate social media sites, and you hear so much from, you know, the the mainstream media, and it just becomes overwhelming. And so what are they, what do people revert back to? Hey, I'm fine. I have a job. I have a great family. We go to dinner, you know, watch football on the, on the weekends. Nobody's trying to break into my home. Nobody's trying to take my children. So it's just too much for me to deal with. And I'm not going to look any deeper. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have this insidious movement that keeps creeping in. But if you, if you actually, look around right so what what actual tangible evidence that there's massive corruption and evil lurking just on the other side of the door well the big one is the covid 19 and you know i have lots of friends that that lost their jobs that were impacted impacted severely by um, the lockdowns 
a lot of small business went out. Um, and you know, that's, and, and I remember going into the grocery stores and there was toilet paper was a big thing, but there was also other things like eggs or maybe it was half and half, you know, cause I got to have half and half of my coffee, no sugar, but, um, there were certain things yeah. it was just like, wow, is this, is this really happening? This is crazy. Um, because it's, we're so accustomed, uh, to this cushy lifestyle. That's the um, truth, man. But it, it's, true. it's very evident, right? And then you you look at what's going on on the border, right? That's real. It's many sources, left, right, center. Everybody acknowledges that there's an open border and nobody's doing anything about it. And that our, you know, leaders in D.C. are either complicit or just turning a blind eye for whatever reason, but it's happening. And all these other divisions, points of divisions within the country, whether it's race, religion, um, you know, vaccine, no vaccine, um, whatever you want to put, put down on, you know, a paper, it's like there's all these division points. But there is really tangible stuff out there that you can grasp onto and say, this is real, this is happening. And I always tell everybody, prior to the invasion of Poland, before World War II happened, the average family would sit around the table, dinner table and I, I guarantee nobody could have guessed of just the, the suffering and mass death that was going to ensue for the next five, six years. Nobody. And there they found themselves. Dude, that's so a settling it, comment. It's, it's totally plausible. Mm-hmm. And people need to be prepared. And I and I commend you, Scott, on the work you're doing to prepare people mentally, spiritually, <clears throat> even advise physically and, and, and getting their skill sets up uh, to prepare for this. I appreciate it, man. I mean, this is, you and I both know what these things can lead to. And it, it is a, it's a very concerning time in America with all that we've been through and to still see so much sleeping going on. Um, and there's also, obviously, I think at the core of this, and I, and I, I kind of want to move this now into Special Forces is the only special operations unit that has a prayer. And I have always felt strongly that what of one of the enduring parts and um, parts that allows you to have so much strength in overcoming as teams has been that root and the fact that your root takes you down to faith and a prayer, knowing that your work is greater than thee. And it is for something, a higher cause. And I think that, that when we get into that, the importance of establishing a strong and warrior heart in the faith of our Lord, I think is extremely important in this hour. Uh, and I'd love to get your comments on that. Well, I, you know, at Bards Fest in, in Kentucky, what a what an awesome time that was! Mm-hmm. And thank you, thank you for setting that up and inviting me. Absolutely. But I remember uh, Cameron Hamilton, he's running for the seventh district, uh, running for Congress. Former Navy SEAL, God fearing patriot. Uh, what he he commented on on this exact question about teams, and he said the most basic primitive team on the planet is the family unit right and and you talk about this a lot the destruction of the family institution 
right? Taking mm-hmm. away whether whether it's the father or just disintegrating the parental units, and then the state or government steps in and takes over, right? As as the de facto uh, caregiver for for the children, but it's just the systematic destruction of the family institution, the basic team that goes back way back in history, right? That, that we need to fix and you know it and you talk about it all the time that we need to focus on the family as our basic team, right? That's where we get our immediate support, whether somebody's sick, hurt, or um, in distress, some need the family, the nuclear family traditionally takes care of that. And then even the extended family, Europe, you know, in, in Eastern Europe, even in Afghanistan, you see their cultures different, but I'm sure you've noticed as well is that their family institutions are more intact than ours in a lot of, in a lot of cases. hundred percent. And they have total commitment, dedication, not only to their faith, but to their families and then their tribes, which is in their extended family. And they would do anything to include, you know, sacrificing themselves. They're giving their life in defense of their tribe and their family. And here, you know, my my wife is an immigrant from Eastern Europe. And one of the, the big shockers she saw when she came here was how families don't stick together here. Right? You know, Eastern Europe, they don't have it perfect. They have a lot of problems. There's drinking. There's... You know, there's a lot of lot of issues, but the families stay together. They support each other. And um, my wife was just shocked that kids here, when they turn 18, they leave the house. And in a lot of cases, don't come back for years. And, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. And, uh, you know, my, my wife calls her mom and dad every single day and talks to them for at least 30 to 30 minutes to two hours every day. It's not just on the weekends, not just on Sundays. And it just blows my mind. Like the difference that, you know, that culture has compared to ours. Um, But we need to build those teams starting with our families within our local communities. Um, Because when it does get dire and it becomes uh, an emergent situation, who are we going to turn to if we don't have those teams already established? We don't have that nuclear family support, the extended family support, our local communities support where we can rely on each other. I can go to my neighbor and he can come to me and, and maybe he needs some food or maybe he needs a tool or maybe, maybe there's, there's roving, you know, bandits in the streets and, and, you know, worst case scenario and he needs to borrow some bullets right or we come up with a neighborhood watch program or somebody stand up on that you know those type of things you cannot effectively you know do without those teams being built already so very strategic to build those teams build your family first build your community next and always of course the, the 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 number one focus is to be spiritually aligned and make sure that you put God before everything else. Because if you leave God, and I've known in my own experience, my own life, you are certainly lost. You have no hope, but by the grace of God, that's for sure. That's well said, Corey. I think it's just, 
it, it's one of those things right now that um, what really struck me when I was in Afghanistan, and I, I, I'm going to probably think you're going to agree on this, but I'll get your thoughts on it. We did so much work always in, um, you know, influence work in many capacities. But the one thing that was always struck me is the thing that, and you said it already, the two aspects of that culture we never really touched. We didn't have to, but it was, it was always outside of everything we could touch was family and faith. And I'm not advocating Muslim faith. I'm not advocating anything in specific other than the fact that they are so solid in it. And the families, as imperfect as they are, and they are, um, they're over there because they you know, we have so many issues about the, how they treat young girls and, and young boys, and I can go on the list and you know. But my point is that they still, I mean, the, the strength of the family unit and the tribe and then their faith I would looking over there. You look at you consider a world collapse, and quite frankly, in Afghanistan, I don't even think they'd notice it. <laughs> they just feel like, oh yeah, it's like let's go back to the ancient ways again. No big deal, you know. Well, I can I can tell you, I could pick up the phone if if my life and my family's life depended on somebody coming armed and going to fight to defend my family and myself. I could pick up the phone and every Muslim friend that I have would not ask a question, wouldn't ask for a dime if they had the money. They would come straight to my house, pick up a gun and stand in front of me and my family and defend our lives. Now, how many American friends? I, I've got a few, but it's, you know, of my Muslim friends, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not advocating that religion at, or, or anything, but I can guarantee they have more faith in their God than a lot of Christians purport they do for theirs. And it's pretty apparent. Dude, that is such yeah. a home run. And they have more loyalty in friendship, which they see as family. Right? Yeah, I've, I've, I feel bad, you know, because I, I'm even, you know, I'm even to blame, I guess, at some point, right, after 9-11, uh, the media helped paint that picture. Our government helped paint the picture um, that Islam was inherently evil and that if if you see a Muslim, they're automatically labeled a terrorist. I mean, how many conversations over the last 20-some years you hear somebody say, maybe it's your your drunk brother-in-law or, uh, <laughs> or an uncle that says, why don't we just nuke the suckers and turn that whole country into glass, turn it into a parking lot? I mean, that was a reoccurring theme. Until you deploy there and you work with these people and you see they're just like you, right? And they have a strong faith, a commitment to their family, and they don't want anything to do with war, right? They're they're just thrust into the middle of it um, because governments are the ones that create war, not people. And and to support that agenda was to paint the picture that Muslims were inherently evil. And that they were all terrorists. And I feel bad for my interpreter in California, you know, because a lot of he, there's a lot of places that he goes and people look at him and fear that he's a terrorist, right? And that it's discrimination. And it was deliberate indoctrination by our media, by the um, <clears throat> by the movie industry, by our government, right? When I know that this individual 
is more American than most Americans. Mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing. So, what are your thoughts going forward here? I mean, this because this is a this is a pretty critical time. I think we're entering. You mentioned it today, and it's a good point. I mean, we're in a election year, and that doesn't bode well because everyone's vying and trying to cheat their way into power. And that means the people are going to be left on the sidelines and anything and everything is on the table to try to swing votes. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, the, the only person that, that I see as a viable candidate and there's, there's some flaws in, in his policies is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And I know him personally. So, I might be a little biased, but I know him, um, you know, on a personal level. And I know he cares. I know he cares about this country and our founding principles. He cares about his family. He cares about yours and mine. Um, You know, there's always influence and there's ways to, to, to get to those, to that position or get elected. And sometimes you bend a little bit. I don't know. I hope not. You bend a little bit on your principles. Um, but, you know, aside from, you know, the reparations, you know, I feel, I feel for people that have gone through those trials in life, but it's like my mom was an orphan in Ireland and she was smuggled to the United States and a wealthy family, thank God, adopted her. So, you know, I'm second generation, you know, I, my, none of my, that I know of, none of my lineage, none of my family tree owned slaves in the United States. So how can you support reparations? I mean, how do you, what's the science behind figuring out, okay, this family suffered under slavery and this family, um, fam, you know, owned the slaves that were, you, you know, it's just like, it's almost impossible. And you can't, without, <clears throat> it, without, hey, I mean, there's no fair way to do it. You know, if we focused on, if we focused on the, <clears throat> the principles that mattered going forward and, and just viewing everybody on the same level, judging, you know, just like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., judge somebody by their character, not the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. And we just treated everybody with respect in the same manner. Nobody was, there was no diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Because we all know that that is race related. It's, <clears throat> you know, you're not viewing everybody equally. You're looking at one group and saying they're privileged. What makes them a lesser person than this other group? How is that equity really? I mean, reality, it's not, but if we just, you know, and, uh, kind of, I'm kind of getting off track, but, you know, going back to your original question in in this, this election year, you know, treat everybody with respect. We're all God's children. You know, yes, there's, there's free will and people do evil things. Um, and, and of course you should protect yourself and others from those evil doers. But uh, uh, besides that, treat everybody with equal respect. I don't judge anybody by the color of their skin. 
or their race, their religion, or whatever. I judge them by who they are, you know, what their character is. Um, but in preparing, you know, for, for this, hopefully, pray not, like, you know, scenario that, that may unfold, I think the best thing you can do is, like you were talking about, building your teams within your family and your local community, but develop skill sets, knowledge, right? Because there might be a time where you're going to need those skill sets for bartering or to, to fix your own car, to fix your own furnace or come up with, um, you, you know, field crafting your own, you know, rechargeable battery system, who knows, or water purification system. You know, if you're not handy, you're not going to be able to do these things. Um, right now we, we have time. You can, you can learn the skill. You can learn how to shoot. You can learn a little bit of uh, medical, you know, medical skill, first aid. Um, you can learn how to purify water. You like you do, you know, the, the whole homesteading, mm -hmm. being able to provide everything from your own property, not depend on the systems that are uh, in place. You know, you can detach from that off the grid. You know, as much as you can develop that, you know, you'll be better off uh, if God forbid any of this doomsday scenario unfolds. Yeah, I agree. I, and unfortunately, I think that just in what we've seen globally, you've already hit it a couple of times when you bring in 7 million people of a completely different culture. And it's a culture clash of, un, of epic proportion. There is no way this is going to go down peacefully, at least for a period. And it doesn't mean it'll be global. I mean, I mean like every place, but wherever you have concentrations of this and you start cutting into resources and support or you start creating inequity, which they're already doing, and they're doing it at an incredible level, you're fueling hatred and you're fueling disdain and you're fueling jealousy and all these acrid emotions. And, and I think ultimately that's... Um, where you and I have also had to talk, and 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 I'm just, and I, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot a little bit, in, in in a good way, and it's just because of something that you said it was so bold to me when you came forward and said, you know, part of the mission now has to be bringing people to Christ, and that's coming from a special forces team sergeant, and I and I respected that statement so much from you, Corey, because you're seeing you that's you seeing the bigger battle, which this is ultimately a spiritual fight that we have to win if we're going to take back this country because it's not going to be one that we're going to win or win easily in flesh and blood. Exactly. Um, I know, I know you know a little bit about my story and I grew up in a, you know, my mom took us to a Christian church and I accepted Christ at the age of 13. Um, but I saw a lot of bad actors within the church and they, my, my mother, he was even treated badly and ostracized for um, basically getting a divorce to get out of an abusive marriage. Um, and it was just, it was just, to me, it just seemed evil. And I kind of turned away from the church. I turned away, um, not completely. I, you know, I find myself throughout my life praying, but I, I, I was done with it. And it wasn't just the last couple of years where I realized that I was on the wrong track. I got off track. You know, God never left me. I left, um, and I decided to make a course correction. And whether I needed to or not, um, 
wasn't that long ago that I was in the parking lot of the hospital and asked Jesus to come back into my life. And, and I think that was just the best change, the best course correction that I, I could have made. And of course, I'm, I'm not well studied uh, as you or some of the others. Um, but you know, it's, it's the motivation, the intent that's important and, and trying to do the right things. And like you said, this is a spiritual war. And if we don't realize that first and foremost, we'll never realize the objectives and reach those, those strategic goals in the physical world. Um, I definitely hands down think that's the most important focus on that first and then the rest will follow. I want to kind of close with this, and and it's uh, and then we'll go to a prayer. But you are not only a warrior, and you've embraced that walk as a warrior in Christ, but you're also an amazing father. And we had a chance to witness that at Bards Fest, humbling. And you're continuing now with your sons to raise them up and give them that scriptural foundation as a father of the family as well as all of the skills of warriors that you can bring to them. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting you, you say that because, uh, you know, ever since I was in high school, I was not a partier. I never drank till I was like 21. Um, I, you know, I started early and I ended up getting, and I, I really didn't have any, because, you know, my, my stepfather died of it when I was young and my, my mom, deteriorated after that so i just kind of i was kind of not i wasn't getting in legal trouble or or doing drugs or drinking but i really didn't have any guidance right so i had this girlfriend in high school I ended up getting her pregnant and uh you know i like it was it was a it was a shock but when i went into the military and and that's what i did i, I was like trying to do the right thing i it's like, okay, I'm going to get a job and get a career, and then I'm going to get married and take care of my family. But my whole life, I only wanted to have a family, raise some kids. And I, I didn't care about having tons of girlfriends and all that stuff. I just wanted a committed relationship. Call me crazy, weird, weirdo, whatever. But um, that's all I ever wanted. When I was in the military, you know, the only one regret I ever had being in the military so the fact now that I, I look back in hindsight, it's 2020, I was fighting some illegal wars, um, wars, a racket. But my only regret was missing out on my children growing up. I was not there a lot, a lot. Um, but now, you know, I'm out of the military and I have my stepson and my three-year-old boy, you know, since, since I retired, it's a whole different ball game. It's a whole different perspective on what being a father is being home you know at night being home on the weekends being able to take vacations being there for birthdays being there for christmas being there for everything um you know it just i'm i'm just grateful that i was given this opportunity a, you know a second chance at being a family man being a father and i love it you know it's um it's awesome it's awesome to see kids develop and in the challenges, you know, I've, I've always thought, you know, the, the sport, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. It's a tough thing to do when you love your children, you do not like to see them in pain. And I think, um, 
a lot of parents have trouble displaying their kids, you know, whether it's a, a spanking or otherwise, because they don't want to see their children feel pain. They don't want to see their children unhappy. They buy them material items. You know, they go into the target and they want a toy. Okay, we'll buy you the toy, you know, but it's that instant gratification that spoils the child. Um, but when you are consistent and you have rules laid out for your children and they understand them, well, then they understand when they break those rules or do something that's harmful to their brother or disrespectful to their parents. When they do get punished, they get a spanking. They understand that it's done out of love and they love you more for it. They respect you more for it. So you're actually doing more for them in that little ounce of suffering, that little ounce of pain than you would do in a year's worth of instant gratification with with candy and cakes and toys and games and all that crud. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a humbling experience to be able to be there for the kids. And, and I love it. Yeah, it's obvious. And you are a great dad and we all had the absolute blessing of experiencing your two boys at Bard's Fest and a deep honor. And I'm just so glad you were there and people get to meet the man that I've come to know you to be. So it's pretty amazing. It's good. Um, we are, uh, we always close with a prayer. It's okay. We'll do a prayer. Absolutely. Father, God, I just want to thank you tonight for Corey Terry. And from a personal note, just him in my life as a brother and a friend. And as in his own ways, a mentor to me as team sergeant that we all wish we had. I was blessed to have him here and in, in his voice to remind us of those deeper values one who is a warrior, but also puts the value in Christ as a warrior in Christ and also puts the value in family to remind us of the importance of the little ones, of children, of building that t- fundamental team, the family, the family unit, which is which we build from. So Father, we pray for the blessings upon Corey and his family to continue to guide them and raise them up, elevate their voice and see these two sons of his become mighty and his stepson mighty as they step into the world now in a world that needs warriors in Christ, guide them and bless them in Christ Jesus name. Amen. Real quick, Scott. Yes. Amen. Um, I'm like, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the support and love I get from my wife, Gilpar. Oh, that's good. She allows me to be the man that I am and the father that I am because without her, it would be, be near impossible she's you know always there for the family she's a great mother she i mean you know and i know the Kentrells do homeschool and others do homeschool but that's a tall order that's a that's a hard task and mm-hmm. for her to facilitate that for my stepson is is a tall order and she does an amazing job and i'm and i thank god for her every day whether she realizes it or not maybe i should say it more um but she is a huge part of why I'm successful at being a father. But thank you for saying that. That's dude. That's fantastic. I, I, I'm glad you said it because it's it's what we forget, you know, in the whole balance of things. We how important, and you just stated it. How important a great wife is in keeping that balance, because a great wife makes a great man. And Amen. you can tell her she's doing a great job. <laughs> it's obvious. That's good. Well, brother, it's thanks for getting not coming on tonight. 
it's been an absolute pleasure and always a pleasure chatting and talking and and having you share your heart with people here because I think it's so important that you know you, you, what you've done and what you continue to do is you you bring that training that you have from the most elite and you bring it down into where it's in the hearts of the many and I think ultimately the buy with through lives in you as a special forces team sergeant as, as a as a man who wears the green beret and I think that that's what's so powerful is that you truly personify that walk which is it's always about the people and, I, and I'm grateful to have you as a friend and call you brother I'm grateful for you brother thank you well, have a blessed evening, man. God bless you, and uh, blessings to your family. You as well. God bless. Oh, God bless. Well, Patriots, that is Corey Terry, and uh, he speaks. His, he's fantastic. He's a, an exemplar warrior in our time and someone who I'm just very blessed to have as a friend and brother and always an honor to have him on the show. Um, he speaks a truth that we have to keep it, our, our focus on which is ultimately that truth of the importance of family as the ultimate unit. That is God's unit. That is God's special unit right there. And it is what we need to be rebuilding because that's ultimately when you water all the things down that we're looking at, that is where the war is attacking. That is what the war is doing. And that ultimately is where, what they're trying to destroy, and we can't let them. And that's the bottom line. So keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you tonight for Fishers of Men. Until then or until the next time. God bless and out for now. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs, and hardships, as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer, to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, 
This country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who move forward, and so will space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. The energy, the faith, the devotion, which we bring to this endeavor, will light our country and all who serve it. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. thousands of years to show its face. It has only one intent, to destroy God's light and to enslave. It has no scruples, it has no rules but one, to win at any cost. But we will never bow, for we are the remnant that will hold the line. This is war. We fight. Push. We climb. We never give in. We become the nightmare that evil didn't know could exist. We pray. We stand. We live by the words in God we trust. We fear nothing. We are the light that can never be extinguished. We are patriots. We are the digital army that will help deliver God's wrath. <laughs> 